My name's Rachel Jolly. I'm the editor of Index on Censorship magazine. I'd like to welcome you to a special podcast from Index on Censorship and Pod Academy. Here, political cartoonist Martin Rousen interviews fantasy writer Neil Gaiman about horror, censorship, art and book burning. I wanted to talk uh, about uh, various themes. I wanted to talk about the visual and, and I wanted to talk about offence and ways things are offensive and, and why they are in different ways. And have you caught up with this nonsense over here about Hilary Mantel's short story, The Assassination of Margaret Thatcher? Yes, I was. I thought it was wonderful. Thought I haven't read the story, um, but I read an interview with her and saw the the thing from Sir Lord Emperor Bell. Uh, yes, Tim Bell. Tim Bell. Yes, <laughs> I thought it was wonderful that column inches in newspapers were being given to a short story. You know, there's part of you that goes as long as people are getting upset, then. A medium is not dead. You know, as, as long as a poem could send the editor of Gay News to prison in 1979, you knew that poetry was not dead. Yeah. And as long as Tim Bell can call for the arrest of Hilary Mantel for writing a story, then, then the short story is not dead. Having said that, for me, what I immediately flashed on was some of these cases in America, some stuff that I dealt with directly and some stuff that just sort of has has crossed my screen, where people would find themselves essentially arrested for thought crimes, where you'd be seeing people would write short stories in which people would die, in which illegal sexual acts would occur, in which bad things happened, and find themselves under arrest, find themselves losing their jobs, it's, finding it's, weird shit happening. It's, well, it's happening here, people sending sexual fantasies to other people about entirely legal sexual practices, like fisting. It is, in fact, illegal in this country to send a text to a friend containing a fantasy, a sexual fantasy, um, about fisting. Likewise, you know, I, I was tweeting last week how, how grateful I was that Tim Bell showed himself to be so indestructibly stupid to actually say um, somebody's got to be investigated by police because of something they've made up in their head, which hasn't happened, which isn't real. I've actually got a quote here. A nice, easy place for freedom of speech to be eroded is comics, because comics are a natural target. Whenever an election comes up, not just an election, I mean, I'm, we're both at an age um, where we can remember they were impounding Robert Crumb coming, yep. into, coming into Britain in, in, in the late 70s, as I recall. Oh, they were they were doing it all the way through to the, the the last Robert Crumb thing that I remember was about nineteen eighty seven or eighty eight because there was um, and it was particularly notable because on the one hand they were the customs were impounding Crumb coming into the country and it was stuff that was being imported to tie in with a BBC Two arena special on Robert Crumb. Yeah. That was 87, 88. The point you made Keep earlier going. on about, you know, poetry's alive when the entry of gay news is set to prison for a poem. There's something in the last 30 years with the stuttering attempts when we've had comics revolutions. I always feel very uneasy about attempts to make the medium respectable. 
Mm-hmm. I actually think that when you have a reader specials about Robert Crumb, that's when the medium is dying. That um, attempts to turn what is essentially a specific genre, uh, which works in a specific way, in the ecology of all the fiction. Um, and, and, and it shouldn't be up there with the Booker Prize. It shouldn't be treated as if it is respectable. Uh, that's probably the satirist within me, because I know, you know, in the ecology of newspapers, um, I'm sitting down in the servant's kitchen drinking a glass of Maccasin, while my uh, columnist colleagues are drinking sherry schooners full of gravitas with cabinet ministers and chairs. Um, and that, in the, to a large extent, is as it should be. But you are, you are you're, you're, you're a global star, Neil. You are a man treated with a great deal of respect by a huge number of people. I mean, don't you feel that you should be doing something to get your books burnt in the high streets of America and indeed Britain? Well, one thing, let, let, let's cover three different things here because okay. you, you, you nipped carefully from topic to topic. The first is comics as gutter medium, yes or no? And I would definitely put my vote in for yes. Um, and partly because I loved being part of a gutter media. I loved the fact that when I was, when, when most of my life was spent writing comics and, and anything else was just tiny hobbies around the fringe, comics were still weird and in the gutter. When I was a journalist, which I was pretty much until I became a full-time writer, so, so this would have been about 86, I remember calling the editor of a national newspaper that I was working for and saying, I want to do a piece on comics. And I said, Dark Knight is happening. We've got Mouse. We've got Alan Moore doing this thing called Watchmen. He's about halfway through it. Something really interesting is happening. Let me write about it. And he said, Neil, it was uh, Desperate Dan's 70th birthday this year. So we've already done this year's piece on comics. And I then went to the Sunday Times... And I talked the Sunday Times editor into commissioning a piece on comics from me. And I went out and I interviewed Frank Miller. And I interviewed Alan Moore, uh, the, the Hernandez brother, everybody. I got Brian Bolland to do new artwork for the piece. And I handed this thing in with more pride than I'd ever handed anything in. Because this was the end of 86 and this was the definitive comics piece and the Sunday Times magazine was going to go with it, and I knew that it was going to be huge. And the editor didn't phone back. And after about a week, I called him. And I said, uh, did, did you get it? Did everything arrive okay? And, and he said, well, well, yes, yes, it did. And I said, well, and? And, and what, what did you think? He said, well, I have, I have some problems with the piece. Which is always, uh, you, you always worry when they say, I have some problems, because it, it, it's their way of telling you that it's not you. And that's always worrying. <laughs> so I have some problems with this. And, and I said, well, what, what are they? I said, anything, I'm sure I can fix anything. And he said, well, I, I don't think the piece, I think it lacks balance. And I said, well, well okay, what it's kind balance. of balance? Yeah. <laughs> and there was a very long pause, and then he said, these comics, you seem to think they're a good thing. And suddenly, I re- you know, at which point I realised I could not give him the balance that he wanted. Where did the balance come from? I mean, I was wondering if you could get Kingsley Amis to come in and say, actually, the novel is top, medium. <laughs> Be off with I, you, children. <laughs> I, think, I think what he needed, what, what he would have needed was a lot of people to say, you know, comics are turning the world into an illiterate morass 
and uh, and look at these pictures and they should all be in prison and Alan Moore is scary and hairy. I bet it, but it was it was you know I got a kill fee from that article and would have traded the kill fee, which was more than I've been paid for most articles, for the article being printed for nothing. There was absolutely, starting out then, the knowledge that this was a gutter medium. But it was freedom. It was, it was wonderful, because I felt like you were making art when nobody was looking. And there was so much going on in 2018. I mean, you look at the concept of Judge Dredd, a ultimate fascist authoritarian cop who at the same time was a wish fulfillment fantasy and a commentary to open people's eyes up to authoritarianism which at the point where he's shooting somebody for possession of sugar you're going hang on I, I may be a fan of dread but you can't do that and it was it's a wonderful thing when you're a kid and you're a teen to have your head opened up Yes, we are a gutter media. And, and I think that is huge and wonderful. I mean, comics is and was. On the one hand, I love that comics gets power from being a gutter medium and is on some level a, this, this bastard gutter medium. On the other hand, you know, partly because I spent 12 years on the board of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund having to oversee, muster, you know, legal cases and such, where the whole point was proving that comics were literature, proving that comics were, were art, proving that comics were worthy of a First Amendment defense and not just trash. And in some cases, that was as basic as trying to... For, well, a, a beautiful example would be Paul Mavridi's where the state of California tried surreptitiously to reclassify comics from art to sign painting. <laughs> Very literally the same as sign painting, um, because they can charge tax, sales tax, on sign painting. But there is no sales tax. When a, man, when, when a, when a, when a uh, novelist finishes a manuscript and hands in the novel, the novelist does not charge the publisher sales tax, because it is art. So there was, you know, the state of California telling Mavridis that he had to pay sales tax because it was sign painting. And that was their way in, I think, to trying to tax the, the Charles Schultzes of this world, all of these other people. And suddenly here's the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund having to get out there and muster our experts to say, no, this is art. This is absolutely art. So you've always got... On the one hand, that you know those tensions, but I, I actually think that comics, because of the capacity for offence that an image can give, will always have one foot in the gutter. They may, you know, it may be walking wobbly because it's got one foot on the pavement, but there will be one foot in the gutter. In the same way that that you know what you do, still, if it's done well has the amount of offence and danger that Hogarth had. Because it's a picture, and pictures cannot be ignored, they cannot be erased. Yeah. They sit there in your head. Comics are a target in a way that literature cannot be a target. Because the truth is, you can grumble about, let's say, Hilary Mantel's Killing a Margaret Thatcher short story. 
But in order to have an opinion on it, you have to read the story. And the act of reading the story is going to change it. If you're going to, to have an opinion on Lady Chatterley's lover, you had to read Lady Chatterley's lover. And that act is going to change you. And it is an act that is considered. It has to take days. It takes time. The act of shocking people or upsetting people or rabble-rousing people about an image is as simple as showing them an image or a portion of the image. You don't even have to show them the whole picture. You can get them upset. And you can get them upset in all sorts of weird directions, whether it's, whether it's Frederick Wortham showing a shot of a man on a beach and trying to demonstrate that actually the drawing of his muscles are the lady behind his erogenous zones. Um, you, you've got that, or you've got, you know, I've noticed over the last few weeks, a wonderful online fufara, and wonderful in the sense that everybody has an opinion about uh, Milo Manara drawing of Spider-Woman's bottom. And no, whether... That, uh, oh, it's been, it, there have been column inches aplenty. I and there have been, the word, it, It's basically people on the one hand, just saying this actually is the most offensive, weird, pornographic shot because there is no way this person, this woman, could be in this frame, at, in this cover, in this shape. Where would the body have to be? And then there's, and, but there's part of you going, it's Milo Manara. If you ask Milo Manara yeah. for a drawing, you're getting a Milo Manara. This is Milo Manara who did the most interesting sex comics of the last 40 years, he did click, he did, uh, you know, this is, this is who he is. I got Manara to do a Sandman uh, story in Endless Nights for Desire for that reason. I wanted it, it wasn't hardcore, but I wanted every, every frame of it to be dripping with sex, and, and it was. Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I've often typified what I do is within the topography of the newspaper as being like a gargoyle squatting mm -hmm. on top of a column. And the reason I get more death threats than my sort of textual colleagues is because they nibble through the copy that Polly Toynbee has written. But uh, very seldom does she get stuff saying, you know, you call that an adverbial clause. You, a child of five could have written that, whereas I'm always going to call that a cartoon. Child of five could have drawn that. Fuck off, you cunt. Um, this happens on a regular basis. But it's because they swallow what I do whole. They don't even, they don't read it. I don't know what they do. They, don't, they see it, but there's something more than just seeing it. And I don't think there's a verb, interestingly, in the English language to describe what they're doing with this stuff they're receiving. That's a sort of a weirdly Anglo-Saxon thing, this suspicion of the, of the visual. I think every culture has its own way of interacting with the image. Yeah. Um, but I think all of those interactions are predicated on the fact that images, particularly images of people, go straight into our heads and create empathy, create disgust. I mean, you know, I, mean I think in your case, one of the reasons why, why you and Steve Bell get your death threats and stuff is because you can draw politicians in particular in a way that shows us how much you hate them. <laughs> and I think that's a fair that comment, and that is visceral. And, and, and what is wonderful is, you know, that hate can communicate across centuries. You can look at, at 17th, 18th century 
political cartoons of fat people with their buttocks out the window shitting into the mouths of the peasants below. <laughs> and you can go, oh, I see this. Yeah, no, I get it. You And you hate that person. So, that so, is so, drawn so, so with hate. We, we probably, if we have a collective idea of what William Pitt looks like, it's courtesy of Gilroy. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually insist, you know, being a respectable citizen, that what I'm doing is for the good of the politicians, because otherwise they stop thinking they're gods, and they need to be kept in their place for their own good. One time I had tried to have a conversation with Gordon Brown about economic policy, his only response to me was, why do you always draw me so fat? Because you are fat, Gordon. When you were writing for graphic novels, were you thinking visually? Because I've, I've never been able to actually work with anybody writing my scripts. I've done, I've done, I've done three graphic novels I've written them myself. So I, I'm not quite sure how the, how the process works, but I think it's actually quite interesting. Um, because there will be stuff which will come out in, the, in this collaboration, which may actually not be what you were intending as a writer. And you know, there may be stuff that actually comes out of your words, which you personally find offensive. Has that ever happened? Yes. Um, once, I remember once actually right in the beginning being offended to the point where we got one thing redrawn and even then we nearly wound up sending somebody to prison. Before we get to that, yes, uh, there are probably as many different ways to write comics as there are comics writers. I probably write a different way for every artist. I write I think very visually, because you never want to ask uh, an artist to draw something that cannot be drawn, and you have to know how you would do it. So I'm forever drawing sick men that people do not see. Uh, some writers that I know of comics actually send people their stick men drawings. There are people out there like Dave McKean, who I think are so much smarter and have so much more visual sense than I do, that all I will ever do is give Dave words. and watch him turn it into a comic because there's no point trying to give Dave a script because he's better than I am. Um, one of my very, very first comics actually was back in 86, 87, I worked with Knockabout on uh, Outrageous Tales from the Old Testament. I remember it well. Wonderful, wonderful volume. It should be in every school in the country. I think so. Um, and... I so was just, fascinated. Just, just, just for the record, but, for the, for the interview, just point out that this was uh, produced in response to MPs saying that comics were disgusting and should be banned, and knock about them very cleverly, just took stuff straight from the Bible and turned it into comic book form, and sex, mayhem, death, genocide ensued. It really did. And I was fascinated by the Book of Judges. And the Book of Judges completely fascinated me, mostly because it's these monstrous, monstrous stories that go over and over again and do not feel like they have morals. They're just monstrousness. And God keeps telling people to commit genocide, and they never quite commit genocide the way that God wants them to do, and then he punishes them. And uh, it, it's basically, you know, the, the, the story of the Book of Judges is that a continuous cycle of the Jews failing to commit genocide in the way that they are told to by God. And I did one story which absolutely fascinated me, which was essentially the story is one about a man whose wife whores around on him and he sends her away. And uh, then he has second thoughts, goes to get her from her dad's, brings her back 
They're on the road to Bethlehem when they stop in a little village for the night. A nice stranger takes the guy in. And that night, a whole bunch of people come out in the street and they say, Oi, that bloke who stopped here with you tonight, we want to have sex with him. And the, the host, the, 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 the good neighbor, says, People, good people, you are being evil, you are being terrible. What, what an awful thing you are saying. You can't have raped this, this nice man who came. But I'll tell you what, he's got a concubine, he's got this wife. And uh, I have a virgin daughter who's known no man. You can have them. So he throws the women out. According to the Bible, they, they knew them and abused them until dawn. And uh, left them dead on, on the doorstep. And uh, the guy puts his wife on the back of his donkey, takes her home, cuts her up into 12 pieces, and sends one piece to each of the tribes of Israel to let them know what a terrible thing has happened, as you do. Um, I had Steve Gibson, who is a fantastic artist, drawing this. And when he got to the rape page, which in the script I'd said, this is not a sexy rape. This is a, you know, this stuff is horrible. This is a gang rape. And it's there in the Bible, and it's awful, and it's monstrous. Um, Steve drew a gang rape so monstrous and terrible that, um, knockabout comics, and I both agreed that it should not see print. I mean, as I recall, the artwork's pretty, pretty harrowing anyway, that particular story. But... Well, exactly. And we had um, Mark Matthews uh, do a replacement page. So there's one, one Matthews page in there among the Gibson. And even that was not enough um, because there was a Swedish publisher of outrageous tales in the Old Testament, who was arrested and uh, threatened with prison for having basically published those pages under uh, Swedish laws against depiction of images of violence to women. I think, honestly, it was only the fact that it was biblical. And we hadn't added anything, and we hadn't done anything, and I was sort of saying, look, if, you, if you're going to go after this, then there's this incredibly disturbing image of a guy nailed to a piece of wood, yeah. hanged there in his death throes, that we may want to start removing, because, uh, uh, you know, it, it's pretty harrowing, and it seems to be some kind of image of torture crime. Uh, but you know that was that was that was I think my one time of looking at something going that is too disturbing. I also wanted to talk to you for a for a bit about um, reality. Why not? Okay. Uh, <laughs> reality is always a good thing to talk about, <laughs> as we seem to be in it. You, you've written, uh, I think it was in the introduction, one of your books of short stories uh, about how telling stories is is almost what defines us as human. Am I right in saying that? I, I you are. I certainly think that is true. Actually, I think the reason why we have language is so we can tell stories because it's part of the process we as a species do constantly recreate reality around us through whatever art form of piece of art is available to us in order to control it and try and make sense of it, uh, to try and appease our overactive cerebellum. Um, but obviously the genre you've chosen is described fantasy, SF fantasy. Um, that's certainly what people know you for. Um, why, I mean, did you choose 
to go into that because that's what excited and interested you the most? Or is there a realistic kind of kitchen sink novel lurking inside Neil Gaiman struggling to get out of well, my, my first question, of course, is what makes you think I have any choice at all in the matter? Um, Fair enough, yeah. You know, there, there's... Um, I, I think when I was a kid, uh, when I was a teenager even, if you told me that I was going to grow up to be a writer, I think I would have been very happy and despite all evidence to the contrary, would have thought, ah, I will grow up to be a sort of Larry Niven-like hard science fiction writer. I'm not even sure why I would have thought this, because that was never where my mind went. My mind tends to build peculiar, slightly fantastic constructs. Um, you know, for, for me, I guess, something like The Ocean at the End of the Lane was really interesting, because on the one hand, there is a novel in there that is pretty much a kitchen sink novel about being, you know, a seven-year-old boy in early 1968 and what you see and what's going on. Um, and on the other hand, you have weird, fantastic shit happening. And then on the other, other hand, you could read that book and go all of the weird, fantastic shit that is happening in this book is a false memory. All of the weird, fantastic shit is a way of trying to make sense of what actually did happen. And that's a perfectly valid way of looking, too. So far, I think I've only ever written one completely mainstream long work, which was uh, Signal to Noise, which I did with Dave McKean a long time ago. And a lot of that was because the nature of the story, which was a director, film director, who was turning 50, which at the time that I wrote that was such an old age and so far away in the future. I might have been, he might have been 150, uh, but he was turning 50 and had cancer and was essentially making his last film in his head before he died. So that story could not, by definition, have any elements in it that were fantastic, that were not natural, that were not realistic, because I needed it to be, to take place in a universe in which uh, death was dark and final and, and the lights were going to go out. There could be no possibility of any continuance um, or anything else. And there could be no monsters because where there is a monster, there is a miracle and there could be no miracles either. Because do you think, do, this do you think, do you think that's the definition? Where there's a monster, there's a miracle. Because I mean, I, I, I'm sort of always sort of slightly intrigued by this idea about realism. Um, a few years ago, there was a wonderful listing in the Guardian TV page. It's talking about film, maybe on film four at one o'clock in the morning, describing as being in hyper-realistic black and white, which is true if you're a dog and you don't have colour vision. But for all human <laughs> beings, it's not realistic at all. It's actually the opposite. Of and, you know, um, Tristram Shandy, which I turned into a graphic novel, um, which, yep. is, which is actually hyper-realistic. The point about it, it takes him so long to write it. It's like the Borges map, which is actually uh, covering the same amount of space as, as, the, as the geographical entity it's, it's mapping, but he's trying to keep pace with reality. 
And yet, Dr. Johnson famously said, you know, nothing odd will do for long, Tristram Shandy did not last, because he thought this was really weird, because he was mediating reality through something else. Uh, and so maybe it's a completely false separation um, that, you know, where there are monsters, there are miracles, but there are miracles every day. I, I'm looking at a train at London Bridge Station through the window at the top of this computer. That's a fucking miracle. I mean, how's, how's that going to get back to Lewisham with me in it, you know, in about an hour's time? I mean, it, it is miraculous. There's a wonderful and, of course, apocryphal and probably not true story about um, Picasso after World War II finding himself in a conversation in a bar or outside a bar with an American serviceman who started haranguing him about naturalism and art and realism and why couldn't he draw anything that actually was like it, it was. And toward the end of the conversation, he pulled out a picture of his girlfriend from his wallet and Picasso is meant to have looked at it and then looked at, looked at the, the serviceman and said, is she really that small? <laughs> And it's a, it is that thing where you go, no, actually, we, we map, you know, we map reality. And our own realities are these strange, slightly haunted, slightly peculiar things anyway. Um, I, you know, which leaves aside the subject of dreams, where each one of us gets to close our eyes at night and go stark staring mad and enter worlds... That, that would have driven, you know, Lewis Carroll mad. But you work in a genre which clearly appeals to millions and millions of people because it, it is, what I was saying, you know, all our, we create reality to help us control it. I mean, do you think if you just skim it slightly off the normal humdrum, the kind of utilitarian, um, grindian way our leaders would like us to lead our lives where we, the only thing we're interested in is choosing which energy supplier we're going to change to. Um, and you just... Tip it slightly off. You introduce a few eldritch gremlins in the corner or whatever, and suddenly that means the reader can be invited into a world which they control, and that's actually the appeal of fantasy. I'm not sure that it's, I'm not sure that it's control. That one part of the appeal of fantasy is seeing everything from an ever so slightly tilted angle. Yes. Um, an, an example for me would be Neverwhere when I love the idea of writing a novel essentially about the homeless and the dispossessed in London in the 90s, you know, the, suddenly you'd entered this world in which people were sleeping rough en masse in London. There, it seemed like it was something that I hadn't seen in my lifetime. The care in the community essentially was, was, was sort of Orwellian doublespeak for uncaring in the community, and the community was defined as people who weren't sleeping on the streets. And it was strange, and it was hard. And I would talk to people who were falling through the cracks, or had fallen through the cracks, and what I realized, or, or how I felt at the time, was, look, I couldn't write a story that was, here is my book about homelessness in London, because the only people who would read it would be people who would be interested in reading a book about homelessness in London. Yeah. I could write a book set in London below about the experience of falling through the cracks, where I could take everything and just tilt it 45 degrees, and I could have people read that book and then come to me and go, oh, my God, I hadn't realized that I 
mentally blank. I stop seeing people who are, are homeless. I've been not seeing people in doorways. I've started talking to them. I've started smiling at them. I've started giving them money. I've started buying the big issue. I've started doing what I can do. You're also living in that book. You're also empowering the completely powerless, the totally dispossessed, by by, create, by, by turning it into a kind of Homeric epic, as, as they do underground. And, 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 and I hope the most also, thing about it. Absolutely. And also, I hope, saying, look, and these are people. Yeah. Which is the bit that there is this weird kind of idea that without a roof over your head, suddenly you have become an unperson. I was just thinking of that wonderful Kilgore Trout story in Slaughterhouse Five um, about how God adopts a bum who's being crucified on Golgotha. And it says, that bum down there, he's my adopted son. And this is just a message. You don't push people around anymore, you bastards. <laughs> Which is, um, you know, that is why we have fiction. <laughs> but unfortunately well, it is fiction. But is it fiction? I don't know whether it's fiction or not. Whether it's, uh, whether it's actually hardwired into us. I think it's hardwired into us to uh, actually a constant attempt for us to occupy the ground being stolen by the, um, by the sort of psych- psychopathic alpha male chimpanzees out there who are trying to run the place. Well, I think, I think that you cannot underestimate um, empathy. And fiction is such a, a peculiar brain-to-brain... Uh, uh, you know, when it works, suddenly you're looking out of somebody else's eyes. You are thinking somebody else's thoughts. And, you know, the scariest statistic that I've seen recently is that 40% of poor white males in the UK will leave school unable to read for pleasure. Can they play games? Can they play video games for pleasure? I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to knock video games as an art form, but they are fundamentally about being in your own head, being somebody mm. and going out and having adventures. It, you know, for me, fiction is empathy. Fiction, I think it would be a wonderful thing for Tim Bell to read a story from the point of view of somebody who would like to shoot Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, I mean, it's um, my, my, my clever agent, David Miller, uh, when I was telling him about how I felt as I was reading Wolf Hall, that this extraordinary thing Mantell does with such a sparsity of language and what appears when you read the first page, such weird language because of the way she refers to Cromwell using a mixture of pronouns. Um, but yet she, she can evoke things in, a, in, a, in about 12 words. She can evoke an entire room, all the people in it and what they're thinking. And he said, well, yeah. that's the thing about books. They're the absolute converse of what the incarnation of Christ is meant to be. It's the flesh-made word, <coughs> which I thought was a wonderful thing. I thought, actually, for an agent, you're pretty smart. <laughs> so, Very clever. And true. Um, you know, and, and, the, and the strange and glorious thing about that is that we can pack flesh down to words and then unpack those words 2,000 years later. Yeah. 200 years later, 3,000 years later. You can, you know, you can read um, The Golden Ass. You could read what we have of the Satyricon. 
and you know these people, and you're there at Trimalchio's feast, and you you understand how they thought and who they were. Um, you can read Dickens, bless him, and you know an awful lot suddenly about I would, both. I would, I would, I would, I'd put a word in for the um, the Chauvet cave paintings as well. You know the ones that Herzog did yep. in the field of. Um, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which are, um, which when I give talks, I sort of say, look at these things, look at these extraordinary images, many of which are actually, by modern definition, cartoons, because any rhino with a horn that big will flatten its face. It is therefore, yep. by definition, a caricature. It's what I do, where the rhinocerousness of it is exaggerated to make it more rhinoceros than a rhinoceros, which is what caricature is about. But these things were drawn 25,000 years before agriculture, which is extraordinary. Which suggests that you know we are more about mediating reality through our consciousness and then recreating it than we are about agriculture. <laughs> I, I love the fact that at the at the centre of the Cave of Forgotten Dreams was an image that was fundamentally pornographic. Yeah. Um, and suddenly, and, and found myself remembering. Um, one of those sort of great transcendent conversations I, I once found myself being talked to by uh, Neil Armstrong very small oh. lecture and he was telling us the story of the moon landing and he began with um, the in Holland um, with the microscope makers apprentices who discovered that if they put a lens, a microscope lens, on one end of a cardboard tube and then another lens at the other end of the cardboard tube and they looked through it, they could see the naked ladies uh, upstairs <laughs> in the brothel over the road, all close up. And I just love the idea of, of course, we get, you know, we get driven, our technologies, and, and you know, those those boys with, uh, you know, and with their proto-telescope uh, lead us straight to the moon. And that drawing of, of the mystery of all mysteries uh, in, you know, that sculptor drawing leads on to everything. Uh, likewise, somebody, um, an anthropologist once posited to me the only reason why we have agriculture is because um, grain alcohol gets you higher quicker uh, than the stuff that was previously available by sort of chewing and spitting into a log. And so it's actually, driven, it's actually driven not by scarcity or by a war economy, but by the need to get pissed. And I think what? that's a perfectly reasonable way of looking at human history. I love the, the, the recent discoveries um, from... from you know, ancient archaeological digs where they've, they've rather tentatively put up their hands and suggested, actually, it's not that... For, for years, there's always been the idea that uh, beer came out of bread-making because you had this extra yeast and so on and so forth. And now they're going, well, well the way that actually it looks is we started out <laughs> making beer and that somebody went, we've got this sludge, and when you add it to this thing and bake it, you can <laughs> eat it. And... Uh, Yes, exactly, exactly. Although there was an amazing little um, 
I've heard a wonderful thing on Radio 4, which is still, uh, to quote the vernacular, doing my head in, in all sorts of nice ways, which is the idea that human beings were domesticated by grain in the same way that we domesticated cows or whatever, um, and dogs, um, that grain domesticated humans and took these otherwise relatively useless anthropoids and got it to become this thing that just spreads grain around, grows grain, um, all of this happy grain all over the planet, the wheat and the rice and the corn chatting to each other, um, having this, this glorious civilization and all because they've managed to domesticate humans to grow them. Actually, that's doing my head in. <laughs> it's, um, it makes sense, wouldn't it? it well, it, partly because it's, it's, you know, they are the most successful things on the planet pretty much now, is, yeah. is wheat, and rice and corn. And also the, the glorious thing, which is they were no good for us. Um, you look at hunter-gatherer human being skeletons, and then you look at, our, you know, the... the uh, the agricultural human being skeletons, and we shrank, and we and got also, sick. Look what it led to, it led to settlement, it led to inequality, it led to capitalism, it led to war, it led to kingdoms. Exactly. To... We were doing just great before we were domesticated by those evil grains. We should rise up against our wheat overlords. Do you think you're mainstream, or do you think you're still out there on the on the on the out, on the on the left field? doing the weird stuff that's actually subverting what, whatever the mainstream... Because, because we live in a sort of consumer capitalist world where everything's a supermarket and you can choose whatever you want wherever you want it, and so we get the illusion of freedom as a result of that. Um, do you think you're, um, you're, you're, you're serving your readers well by making them question this? Um, or are you just, have you just sold out of here? I think that the nature of the civilization and the culture have changed profoundly in the last 30 years. And I think that people like me and Alan Moore got to be some of the people who were driving some of that culture change. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, I was sushi in a world in which if you wanted to have sushi in any little town or any big city, you had to go and find the one place that sold sushi and you had to go there and it might be full but that was the one place because it definitely wasn't mainstream mm. and now every little town seems to have sushi and any big city has you know a lot of places that sell it um or the weirdness of something like Kate Bush where if you'd asked me where Kate Bush was in relationship to the mainstream, I would have said, well, you know, here is the mainstream, and there was Kate Bush off here in a little town in Oxford, just a long way from the mainstream. And then you watch her coming, doing her gigs, doing these, these weird, glorious things that are all straight out of her head, uncompromising in any way, but she's doing them to 22 full nights at the former Hammersmith Odeon, and all of her albums are back on, and you're going, well, I, I don't know, are you mainstream? What the fuck are you? And I'm, I think I'm kind of that. I haven't changed doing what I do, 
I definitely was very weird and out there when I started doing it. Um, not, you know, not either Cutler level weird and out there, but, but still definitely not part of the mainstream, definitely something that, you know, something that was liked by the people who liked that sort of thing. We're now in the sort of third generation of that, whatever it is, as people who were kids and newborns and not conceived when I was writing my first stuff, when I started writing Sandman, are now breeding for them. And also to some extent, I think for school kids, just because of things like Coraline, yeah. which was, and, and Coraline, I, I think uh, Coraline's a great example because Coraline, when I started it, I showed it to my editor, Richard Evans at Golax, who declined to publish it incredibly kindly. He said, I think it may be the best thing you've ever written and it's absolutely unpublishable in every way because you're writing horror for kids and that's not publishable and you're writing a book that seems aimed equally at adults and kids and that's not publishable. But I, I love that you're doing this, but Neil, do something else. And finally, I finished it a decade later. And when I finished it a decade later, it was publishable, but I had to fight for it to be a kid's book. It would have been easy to publish it as an adult book. Um, and it didn't hit huge, but it sells the same number of copies every year. And then it so became a movie. New, new groups of people. Exactly. Yeah, people yeah. find it every year. Um, new kids find it. Uh, they pass it along to each other. And there are now, I, I look on the American, the, the, the list of children's names. Um, and Caroline has crept from being nowhere on the list of the top 100,000 children's names. It's now up in the 600s. Oh, that's nice. So it, it, it actually... Does that, does that not sort of fill you with a slight terror of the enormous power you have over people's minds? You know, you could use this for evil, if you chose to. Many um, people do. I mean, you know, you, think of Ayn Rand. <laughs> but don't think of Ayn Rand. Let's... I will not think of Ayn Rand. We I will try my... Mostly what it tells me is that what you do for yourself because, you know, Caroline was essentially a book I was writing for my daughter. What you do for yourself has an effect when you make art outside. And, but it's also not something that you have any control over. This river, with its mainstream in it, has reached a floodplain. Yeah. And has washed over everything that was apparently on the fringes. Um, and um, I think... By... The, 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 the key word for the last 20 years for me is confluence. Yeah. And I love the fact that you've said it's become a floodplain, because that is a confluence. It's all of the rivers, all of the mainstream and the outlying tributaries have, have come together. There isn't, for example, you know, looking at kitchen sink drama and trying to say, well, this is, you know, this is what fiction should be. This is proper fiction and the other stuff is the way you look at what fiction is and there's nothing now that seems to privilege kitchen sink drama well, and the people who write kitchen sink drama are fans of mine at that point where you turn around and you i discover zadie smith was a sandman fan and and you know michael shaban loves my stuff and doctor who and 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 you can see it feeding back 
into what they do. Uh, my, I'm going to name drop now. My, my very good friend Will Self um, recently started opining in his usually delightfully Eeyore-ish way about the death of the literary model. And I sort of tried to explain to him, you know, no, no, it, it, it's not going to die. It's going to become like jazz. It's going to become something, it's just another thing. It just means you're not riding high on the cultural hog anymore, and maybe we won't have to pay any more attention to Martin Amis, thank God, just because he's a bloody literary novelist. Because, you know, there's no reason why there should be a hierarchy of these things. I think we agree it's a good thing that this, we've reached the front way, that all these things which were previously allowing people like the editor of the Sunday Times to say, essentially, we're trying to big up trash, um, for what you and I have both been involved with um, in terms of graphic novels and things like that, um, has reached that mainstream or has been engulfed by the mainstream. So what are the threats? This all sounds good, but clearly the reason why we have organs like Index or Censorship is because there remain threats. There remain people who want to ban Sandman from school libraries. I think, that, well, firstly, I think those threats will always be there. I had to watch one get fought over a paragraph in Neverwhere where our hero is standing invisible while a couple are making out on a bench. And uh, you, you, you learn that uh, the man's hand is, is exploring underneath her jumper, an adventurer in an undiscovered country, and uh, they're a bit drunk. And a parent decided that nobody should read Neverwhere because that paragraph uh, which in context, I think, is, is absolutely about being alienated and being outside and being invisible. Uh, being invisible. That paragraph and thus that book should not be read by anyone. Um, yeah, and this, I is, think, this is the standard idiot who says, I don't like it, therefore nobody is like it. Well, exactly. You know, the, the fault in our stars has just been taken out of a California, a Los Angeles school system and, and with a note saying it could not even be donated. If it was donated, it had to be given back or burned or whatever. And you're going, this is The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, which is probably the best-selling book of the last three years. So I, I think, pop, and, you know, it was a huge movie. I think popularity and mainstream success does not mean that the people who are looking out for your best interests and want to save you from the stuff that could contaminate your brain will, will not save you. They, 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 they are out there and they are determined to save you from anything. Um, and popularity for them means, uh, you know, genuinely means nothing. Nor should it. They, their mission is to save. So, so in uh, a way, if, if we sort of come full circle, we, um, where we started off this conversation by agreeing that graphic novels, comic books... Um, really belong in the gutter there, they are in the gutter, that's a very good thing, and they should outrage people, and we should applaud it when the psych avaricious psychopaths in charge try to actually control them and stop them, and we win a little victory in our hearts every time somebody reads that book. Um, likewise, the fact that they're still there is, is, is a counter to this wonderful line from, from Bunuel's autobiography of My Last Breath, one of my favourite books, where he's describing going to Paul Eluard's funeral, and André Breton at the graveyard says, my life isn't worth living anymore, nobody's shocked anymore. But of course they still are. So in a way, we win, we win on all fronts. We're in the they, mainstream, and people are still shocked. That's true. And, and um, what fascinates me right now is what people, what shocks people, what become, and, and it's a good place to stop, because 
it's also a good place to talk for the next four hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what shocks people? What is now unsayable? Change and redefine and, and move around. In you know, 1987, one of the Sandman graphic novels was getting banned and attacked because it featured the first transsexual character in a mainstream comic. You know, I, I had a character in it who was transsexual and was sympathetic and was smart and charming and fucked up as all of the characters in Sandman were. And it was, and I was getting attacked from, you know, conservative elements, from people who thought there should be no transsexuals in comics, from the American Family Association put me on their banned list because of that, and the Concerned Mothers of America actually boycotted DC Comics. And I, as far as I know, have never lifted their boycott because of me writing my transsexual character. Um, and now I get, you know, attacked by young transsexuals, uh, young trans activists going... Look at this character. You kill this character and bad things happen to this character, which proves you are transphobic. And why could you do this? Gaiman's transphobia makes Sandman unreadable for me. And I'm going, you know, a part of me just goes, I wish you could have been there in 1988 when I was writing it. One thing that will be with us forever is offense is in the eye of the beholder and is one of the most effective, taking offense is one of the most effective political offensive weapons around. Absolutely. And shock. And, and the point is that, you know, Andre Breton looking around going, nobody gets shocked anymore. It's like, well, no, Andre, actually, nobody gets shocked because you hand them cold spaghetti at an art opening and say, this is the vagina of my grandmother. Um, but you can shock them in other ways. And you always, we can always shock. And, but I, I always think that shocking actually is much less interesting than making people think because making people think has long-term effects. This podcast has been brought to you by podacademy.org and indexoncensorship.org. Thanks for listening.